Hello and welcome to another episode of the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. To the world, you are an abomination, a monster with unholy abilities. You're shunned and left to fend for yourself. Your only chance of survival is to tap into that dark potential. Would you do it? In an isolated mountain community, sometimes a child is born with two hearts. Such a child, a striga, is considered a dangerous demon which must be abandoned on the edge of the forest to protect the community. The only choice the child's mother can make is whether to leave her home with her infant or stay behind and try to forget. This is the premise behind the book The Second Bell by Gabriella Houston. Part dark fantasy and part coming-of-age story, it draws heavily on aspects of Polish folklore and, in particular, it provides a new take on the Slavic mythos of the Stiga. Gabriela was born and raised in Poland, where she was brought up on a diet of mythologies and fairy tales. She spent her summers exploring the woods, foraging and animal tracking with her family. At 19, Gabriela moved to London to study English literature and obtained a master's degree in literatures of modernity. She's worked as an assistant editor and as a freelance writer. Gabriella's short stories have been selected for the Editor's Choice Review by Bewildering Stories, and have been featured on the Ladies of Horror Fiction podcast. Gabriella joined me recently to talk about the folklore of her homeland, and how it influenced the writing of her debut novel. So, Gabriella, welcome to the Folklore Podcast. It's lovely to have you along. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, before we start, just um, take a couple of minutes, if you would, to tell everybody a little bit about yourself, your background, uh, what you do, and where your interests in kind of folklore and history and those sorts of things lie. Uh, so I'm uh, a Polish a writer living in the UK and um, I came here at, at 19 which was a very long time ago and um, I recently had my debut released from Angry Robot uh, it's called The Second Bell and um, it's a Slavic folklore inspired um, adult fantasy novel about a Striga and her mother now you say it's inspired by Slavic folklore, and we'll move on to that in just in just a moment. But but say a little bit to uh, kind of whet the appetite of those people who have not yet read the book, or or to summarise for for those that perhaps have, uh, what the general plot and premise of this story is, with, without going into any kind of spoilers. So. Um... It's set in a small mountain uh, community where every now and again a child is born with two hearts. Such a child is considered to be a demon, an aberration, and uh, has to be uh, thrown out of the village, abandoned on the edge of the forest um, as soon as possible. Um, And sometimes uh, the mother of such a child chooses to leave with her baby and join the uh, community of Strigas in the mountain. So um, it's inspired, um, roughly inspired by um, the myths of Strigas, uh, which are um, 
Slavic demons, but um, it's uh, I, I I changed it around so it's not um, it's not a straightforward retelling of any of the Shiga um, myths um, that exist in the in, in the in in the Slavic folklore. It's um, I took certain elements. So uh, Shigas have two hearts, um, and they have sort of unspecified powers but in the mythology they're um pretty much straightforward bloodthirsty monsters and um in my book that's how the community sees them so if when the child is born with two hearts it's um it's considered to be a monster and nobody quite knows what powers sugars actually have but they know that whatever they are they would bring disaster and ruin upon the community so such a child must be immediately expelled and uh, then we have two because we have two communities we have a human community that um, banishes all sugars um, and then we have a community of sugars living in sort of abject poverty very high up in the mountains um, pretty much completely cut off from the world and um, because they are essentially the same people, they have um, uh, internalized this idea that what makes them shigas is evil. And should they try and explore what they actually are and what their second hearts can do, um, that would turn them, um, Ir irreversibly turn them into monsters so they kind of really self-police in that community and 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 it's all about the fear of the unknown and the fear of what you know you, you build up those fears in a community about um about what 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 those people are and 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 the res results of that Yes, and in that way, I, I suppose it, it reminded me a lot of, of kind of when we look back at uh, previous centuries, that kind of um, interplay within a community between people who were considered to be witches and other people or, or people Still that... Still goes had, on. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It really does. So uh, your version of the Striga is slightly different, isn't it, to, to the actual Slavic folklore, where it's more of a kind of vampiric, demonic creature? Yeah, so, um, I mean, there's different versions of the Striga sort of stories, because um, uh, the, the one thing about Slavic folklore and Slavic mythology is it's extremely fragmented, and... Um, you know, depending on which books you read, the, uh, the accounts are often sort of self-contradictory and it's, it's very hard to get the kind of main canon, as it were. Um, but by and large, yes, sugars are monsters. Mostly they kind of wait for um, uh, travelers in the woods and then sort of just eat them, <laughs> attack and eat them. Uh, the, 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 some of the constants are that uh, they have two hearts. In some versions, they have two sets of teeth as well. Um, that's obviously in the folklore, not in my, not in yes. my book. Yeah. Um, and they're usually a version, there's usually some kind of um, curse involved. So either they were cursed at birth or their mother was cursed. Um, and then they're kind of doomed to become strigas, uh, usually after death. 
So they will come back as triggers. Um, in some versions of a story I've seen, um, uh, the sugars are born. So you, you might have a child that's born with two hearts, two heartbeats. And, um, and such a child would inevitably turn into a monster, whether after death or, or whether, um, during its lifetime, uh, that's not, um, that's not particularly consistent, but, um, but the fear that surrounds them and this fear of kind of the inevitability of them um, coming back to, to haunt the others un unless they're completely destroyed, you know, unless they're like heads are cut off and whatnot. Um, that is a constant. So, um, in you know, obviously this particular book, it's, it's quite a small self-contained story. So there's not a huge amount of kind of, you know, outside world, outside um, folklore, and I kind of kept it small on purpose to sort of not overwhelm the uh, the, 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 the plot line. But um, what I wanted to preserve is this feeling from the folk, from the original kind of stories of this inevitability of disaster looming, of the of the threat that is constantly just there under the surface um waiting to strike if if you don't follow the rules if you don't um if you don't know the right things to do and you know the, the right um uh, sort of the, the laws to observe then then the evil will come out now the 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 fear of the striga in the original Slavic folklore is, is very much a known thing, isn't it? You know, it's known to be demonic. It's, it's known what they do. But you turn that around a little bit because it, I suppose in some respects, the fear of the Strigger in your story is more a fear of the unknown or the misunderstood. Is that fair to say, do you think? Yes, I mean, that's very fair to say. I mean, I, I... obviously the, the Strigas do have some sort of powers. They do have abilities. Uh, not to sort of give away too much. We do have abilities that are, that go beyond what ordinary humans can do. Um, and, you know, with any kind of power, with any kind of ability, of course, it can be used for ill. Of course, it can cause harm. Um, so in, in one way, uh, it is quite sensible to be concerned about people among you who are so much more powerful than the rest. Um, but so you know there, there is this sense that maybe in, in sort of origins of in the origins of the of the fear that kind of consumes those two communities um perhaps there was like a reason like a good reason <laughs> maybe some sugar was was evil maybe some sugar did cause um a lot of harm and uh and that's why this kind of general prejudice came came from but but again we don't know that um as readers because um i think when you kind of re when it really boils down to it um historically when you look at like how do human communities behave when someone is born with a visible difference not just um you know, n not just there, but very different in, in, in the way they behave or a, a, a visible difference, something you can detect, you know, like two heartbeats in this case. Like, you know, historically, humans don't react very well to that. And they do tend to build up a lot of stories and a lot of taboos around any difference. So um, so that was one of the kind of 
reasons I wanted to explore that. The Strigger need to control their abilities in your story, ideally. Um, there are repercussions if they don't do that, aren't there? Um, They're very visible um, repercussions. So yes. obviously, and that's not actually spoiling any of the story because uh, that that's explained near near the beginning. Um, unless a sugar suppresses its sort of stronger emotions, unless it um, is very, unless a sugar is very centered and and and, and controls um, his or her behavior. Um, then the second heart might sort of become stronger and it's all and the shadow that is um uh and, and the sugar's shadow uh can become in some cases almost corporal so any um any kind of power that flows through the other heart strengthens the shadow attached to the sugar in a uh in a way that kind of defies the laws of physics in um in some ways and uh and that's irreversible so should you indulge and should you try and explore the powers within your other heart then um your shadow becomes animate and stays that way and you can't really you you, you can't put it back in a box you can't yeah. undo that and that's why everyone around you in the community would immediately know, know that you broke the rules Another uh, character who features very heavily in this story uh, is the character of Dola, um, who um, has has that as a name, but that is also a term, isn't it, as well, for a kind of yeah. midwife-type character? Uh, yes, yeah, so Dola's, I mean, depending on what you're reading, um, Dola's were either um, minor goddesses, or spirits um, that could tell the future. And that basically, Dola in Polish, uh, in slightly archaic Polish, means um, fate, essentially, destiny. Um, or the, the, way, the way your life is, to kind of explain it a little bit more. So not, not necessarily just what's going to happen, but this is your, this is your life, this is, what what how your life unfolds and i thought it would be um a really nice sort of tie-in to have a community that lived sort of in between those two worlds between the sugars and the humans um and they at least lay a claim we don't actually see them really perform any magic or um beyond kind of reading from the runes um but uh, they're midwives. They're he. They're sort of medicine women, and um, so they are seen as having all those abilities, um, but they are not uh, reviled by the human community. So there's a, a bit of a discrepancy there in in terms of how, uh, like <laughs> intentionally, in how humans can sort of treat the same thing. But they can treat it completely differently. So the Shigas, you know, with their powers, the potential of their powers is not explored. The potential, of, the, the potential for good in them is not, uh, is not of interest to the human community. They are reviled. 
Whereas the dollars who have very useful abilities, we know, you know, they're, they're midwives, they are wise women, so um, they are revered. So, um, so that's, they are balancing sort of between those two worlds. And, and, and I like to have that kind of as a link and as a, also as a contrast between how, um, between how we're seen. So, uh, and, and yes, the, the, the community, um, if, if all the women in that community, uh, and they're only women, all the women in that community, uh, share the name, they're all called Dola. And it's also a term for their function and their role um, on the is, premise that, that there's one fate for the world, so one name is good enough for them. Is, is the, the figure of the dollar uh, in Polish history, uh, as, a, as a wise woman, as, as strong as it is in uh, British history with... Um, sort of village healers and wise women well okay so dola uh the actual creature in folklore is quite obscure so that is not that that is something i just read about it's not something that like existed for a very long time mm. there were of course um so there, there was a huge almost like in russia maybe not to that same extent but there was a huge divide between um, sort of the agricultural lands and um, the sort of peasants living in in the villages and um, and the people living in the cities, so uh, it, it was like centuries apart almost. So um, there's there's stories um, written by a Polish sort of nineteenth nineteenth uh, twentieth uh, early twentieth century. Uh, writer Bolesław Pros, um, where he describes some of those um, uh, villages, sort of village customs, and um, and yes, they they are wise women in those stories. I mean, they to to what extent they're wise is uh, perhaps uh, disputable, um, but they they have their um, they, they, they have their kind of more mystical role where they kind of link the old folkloric traditions and the old um, healing ways with the Christian faith in a, in a slightly twisted way. Um, so, uh, you know, <laughs> it's one of those stories, and I have no way of knowing if he based it on anything he heard about or, you know, anything real at all, but the, in, in one of those stories... Uh, there's a child that is sick um, and the mother consults a local wise woman and the wise woman says, well, you have to put her inside the stove for the time it takes to tell free, um, to, to, to go through the rosary and, and pray around the rosary three times or something like that. And the, the, the younger son is trying to rescue his sister. And of course, um, the sister is burned to a crisp. And uh, like the mother pulls her body out. It's like, oh, the devil left her body too quickly. So unfortunately, it didn't work. But that's... So there, there's an interesting kind of dissociation from the old um, sort of... The, the way we understand like a wise woman or medicine woman here on the, in different cultures where there's actual... Um, evidence of 
their experience i think it's um it it, it it's not seen in the same way in uh, in the polish countryside but yes of course but of course there's always people who claim to have knowledge beyond their peers oh yes situations and it's not always accurate unfortunately <laughs> no indeed uh so so the dollars in in your story are, are actually more respected than the than the polish wise women of, of history because they actually like you you know they have a quiet competence about them mm. so um uh it, it, it's like here you know pre I, I was actually thinking about um the medicine women here in kind of pure pre-puritanical rule where cromwell basically under cromwell's rule um women were forbidden from um, taking payment for providing any services to do with sort of medical needs or midwifery and um, infant death and childbirth, um, childbirth death mm. um, tripled or quadrupled or something over like the course of like five years, something. And um, which is obviously evidence of the real skills that those women brought to their um to their villages to their towns and that was kind of taken away and uh so so the dollars are much more obviously inspired by that this kind of quiet competence um of their healing abilities um but not much supernatural they do give themselves a kind of those supernatural airs that they can tell the future but they can see you know see, see what's going to happen and you know and then for sure, they do believe it to an extent. We do see the like evidence that they do believe that they have those abilities. But as readers, it's like, you know, I leave it up to you whether you think that they do have those abilities or not. Yeah. Um, your your main protagonist, Salka, also has a, um, an, an animal friend in, in Munu, a, a falcon. Are you using that as a pure story mechanism or do animals in polish folklore have a role to play in stories in the same way as as in your book um so of course animals feature very heavily in um in slavic folklore and i think they you know animals feature heavily in many um in in all folklore around the world, well, I yes, would probably yes. expect. Yeah. Um, in different ways. It's um it's you know, it's mostly sort of they're mostly separated into the useful farm yard kind, but obviously you don't want to get too close to the farmyard animals for obvious reasons. Um, not emotionally at least. But um and there's always this sense of like there's there might be a demonic presence in the dog or in the cat or you know, something like that. Um so Munu is um but the the role of um uh, the bird in in uh, in my story is slightly different. So it's uh, I like to draw kind of parallels, um parallel storylines and and um Munu is rescued so it's like basically like a hatchling that has no business surviving at all and Sauka's mother just takes takes it on at the same time she sort of joins this new life that she's really terrified of she 
decides to leave her hometown with her infant, but she doesn't know whether this infant is some kind of evil being or not. But she just knows this is my child, so I'm going to leave. And hopefully the child doesn't turn out to be a monster. And so she takes on this this falcon. Of course, the falcon um, does survive and uh, does thrive and and becomes her daughter's companion. Um, so there's all those kind of like, you know, who do we choose to sort of help? And, um, and when and under what circumstances we choose to help another being. Um, that is a very kind of important um, theme for me. And also the uh, the fact that Muno is like acts as a benchmark for for Salka to kind of gauge her own. There's a period in the story where she's away from her community, and it's just this. We always judge ourselves against something. So you know, are we are we doing the right thing? Are we not doing the right thing? Is this a natural thing to do? Is this not a natural thing to do? And for Salka's those, those questions are, are crucial. They're very, very important to her sense of identity, to her sense of self. And um, uh, and Moon pro- provides a kind of benchmark because he's a natural creature and the way he reacts to different things um, can either scare her or give her a sense of comfort. It's, it, it, it's, um, it's like this kind of guiding animal like that, 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 that shows you the right way way to go whether of course that's in her head again it's you know this is but but this is the role he plays for her and 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 there are lots of questions like that i think that you you very much leave it down to the reader to make their own interpretation as to what exactly is happening with which i think it's uh, more fun this way yes yes absolutely (laughs) absolutely we did um we did an episode on the podcast last year about Slavic witchcraft um, and witchcraft and, and magic in in Slavic tradition is, is still you know very very much alive and and being you know used and studied in in various places. What's the kind of role of folklore generally within Slavic? life in modern times does it have any importance is there is it down to just kind of national tradition that it's important um or are people still very you know superstitious or very culturally aware of that side of their past well so it comes and goes in waves really um the um so at the moment there is a bit of a sort of neo-paganism kind of renaissance um, uh, as more young people kind of turn away from uh, the Catholic Church um, they um, they find like uh, like they, they, they look to the old traditions as out of interest out of kind of sense of belonging to sort of some kind of like national identity um, there's been, you know, long periods in, in Polish history where the, and still are, where the Catholic Church, you know, tried to very actively um, not just discourage, but erase, um, erase the, the pre-Christian beliefs and traditions, and which is, you know, essentially why the, what we have now in terms of um, what's been preserved is just so fragmented and it's so, 
you know, um, it requires um, the combined efforts of archaeologists and linguists and um, ethnographers to to kind of try and build up an image of what those beliefs were um, before the advent of Christianity and, and sort of what's now Poland. But um, and not that not just Poland generally, like you know Eastern Europe. Mm. Um, but there's. Uh, yeah, so 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 people do every now and again. There's like a fashion for trying to kind of rediscover the roots. There was, um, um, what, was what did they call it? Um, it wasn't Slavic Renaissance. It was. Um, oh, it it might come back to me um, in the kind of late nineteenth century. Uh, there was this renewed interest in 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 folklore and in uh, in the old Slavic beliefs and traditions. Um, and throughout history, you would have like certain, um, like <laughs> our famous roman uh, romantic kind of poet, um, Mitskevich wrote about Jada, which is the, um, the, the pagan holiday, well, pagan, it's like, well, pre-Christian ho um, holiday kind of where you, uh, can commune with the dead spirits of the dead. Mm. Um, and that is now pointed to as one of those kind of bulwark like look this is this is how this was done i mean obviously it's it's like a long um poetic kind of um version of it but but yeah. that's how little we know for sure so there are there are a lot of movements at the moment um that i've seen around where people uh try and um you know, perform those old rites, and and there's certain things like um, like an, this uh, Andrzejki holiday where you would uh, pour wax through the key and try to um, uh, tell your future from whatever shape the the wax um, uh, makes, or um, or we have the Maja the, the drowning of Majanna in uh, in in the spring, so in 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 March, I think in March. Um, where you would take this um, hay effigy and drown it in the river. And that sort of symbolizes uh, the coming of spring and, uh, um, and the death of winter. I mean, that small ritual is all that's left of a much bigger worship of Majanna or Morana, uh, as she was called um, in kind of southern Slavic states i think um who was this according to some sources this powerful goddess of death and rebirth and blood and motherhood and all that so um but we know very little of it and all that's left at the moment all that people do now really um is just drown the effort the hay energy mm. so it's, it's, it's a complicated question because it's because the fashion for it comes and goes Yes. Is, um, you know, when I was very young, there was the fashion went sort of the opposite way. So obviously, I mean, I, we would read the stories, you know, my parents got me like book, story books and all that that had Slavic, um, Slavic fairy tales in them. But um, when it comes to kind of folkloric traditions, those would sometimes be looked down upon because they're seen as uh, 
they're folk traditions. So they're kind of they're, they're non-urban, they're not not modern, they're kind of seen uh, as slightly backwards looking. Mm. And so you have, you know, a, a few decades where it's seen as highly unfashionable to be interested in um, in Slavic dancing or music or anything like that. And then you and now it's kind of swinging pendulums sort of swing the opposite way where people are quite interested in that and see the the the, the magic and, and 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 the power of those rituals and and and, and that music and, and all of that but it's interesting to see those parallels isn't it i mean you know that that uh the wax divination custom the the straw effigy they're, they're all very similar to to things that you find in other countries and you know even the view of these things as being rural and backward is is no different to anywhere else it's interesting to see you know across the board how these things sort of move and change the second bell was your debut novel as as you said at the start um how did you find the whole process did you enjoy writing it have you enjoyed the reception that it's had I mean, I I really enjoyed writing it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. I don't tend to do things I don't enjoy doing for very long, at least not for as long as it takes to write a whole book. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, obviously, the process of finding an agent was quite long. Uh, but then I was very lucky to sign with John Baker from Bell and Max Martin. He's he, he's really enthusiastic guy, and he's he's just really lovely. So I, I really got on well with him and um and actually we got an offer once he sent it out once we've done the edits together uh we got an offer within like a couple weeks i think two three weeks <laughs> so it was really lucky um but everything kind of you know fell into place in the way it did and 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 the angry robot team are really amazing i mean i loved um doing the edits with eleanor teasdale she's you know i just i really vibed with her edits and i i i, I thought she was wonderful and and then I had the uh, Caroline Lamb, who's um, a publicist. I mean, the, the amount of work she's done. I mean, I had worked in publishing before, so I was kind of expecting myself for nothing. You know, <laughs> like, I just um, so I, I, I didn't know how much marketing I would get. I didn't know how much um, they would be willing to kind of work with me to try and um, maximize the publicity or whatever. And I was so pleasantly surprised. So it was just, it was a lovely experience working with them. Really lovely. I mean, you know, I, I, I hope that people like it. The reviews in the kind of blogs and newspapers were really good. So fingers crossed it kind of continues this way. Obviously, COVID has been less than brilliant. Well, it's, it's not been great. It's not been great for any of us as, as authors, certainly, particularly putting books out in the last 18 months. Yes, has been I mean, it did come out sort of in the middle of the third lockdown. Mm. So obviously, bookshops have really struggled to kind of catch up with stocking. Um, so, you know, of, of course, you can still like get it from all the, all the bookshops online. Yes, um, they all sell it. Um, but just um, there haven't been that many that were able to sort of catch up and get in the shops mm. because so much has had come out in, in three months. So, But now is a really great time to support your local independent bookshop and there's a great way of doing it is to go and get a copy of this. I certainly thoroughly enjoyed it and I would recommend that anybody else does go and get a copy. No, it was wonderful. It was really good. So can we expect 
more from you in a similar vein in the future? Absolutely. I can't. Um, I'm not yet allowed to talk about it. <laughs> no, of course. But there will be things. There will be things. And <laughs> I will shout about them. And will the things include folklore? Of course. There we go. That's, that's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not quite done with Slavic folklore yet. I, I like how dark it is. It's, oh, it's yes. very twisted. It's very... Um, it's uh it's it's a bit misanthropic <laughs> at points but it's uh so i'm not quite done with it yet no 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 there's a there's a very rich vein to tap into there for future books i'm i'm sure and we shall certainly look forward to seeing what what you come up with next time let's leave it at that gabriella thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us about the second bell it's been wonderful to chat to you it's been a pleasure My thanks to Gabriella for a fascinating talk on Slavic folklore, and to you for joining us once again. Please remember that you can support the work of all of our projects to preserve and protect our folklore and heritage with a small one-off donation on our website, or by joining us at patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast for extra content. And by sharing our content and leaving a review, you can draw more people to the show too. Thanks as always for your support. If you enjoy what we do, please help us to carry on. I look forward to welcoming you back for another episode very soon. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. The Folklore Podcast is part of the Folklore Network. Folklore.